Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Onkwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Wichita Beacon, News One, The Griot, The Root, Ebony, Blavity, and The Community Voice. First, we'll start with Part Two of the article titled, The Legend of O.T. Jackson and the Black Ghost Town of Deerfield, Colorado, by Bilal Morris, News 1, April 11th, 2022. For blacks, there was nothing more dangerous than living in a white world. Records show 49 black Americans were known to have been lynched in 1882. There were probably hundreds more never reported. Jackson believed blacks needed their own community away from the despair and racism. The Tuskegee Institute was a testament to what a motivated black mind could create, and Jackson knew he needed to find a way. In 1887, the 25-year-old Jackson moved to Denver, Colorado, then later to Boulder, where he honed in on his instinct for entrepreneurship. During the time, Colorado was a promising land for blacks, escaping bondage after the Civil War. Whites were afraid of the Native Americans and Asians who occupied the lands, which gave blacks a unique opportunity to seek refuge and build communities. Sadly, it's almost impossible to know exactly how O.T. Jackson lived. But it's fascinating piecing his life together through the many newspaper articles that mention his name. In the 19th century, newspapers were the holy grail for local and national information, and Jackson always seemed to be in the mix. While diving through his life, I was able to find over 19 different articles in more than five different newspapers, all praising his accolades some of which he even wrote himself. The man was a true legend. He bought his first restaurant before he was 30, called the Stillman Cafe, which once boastfully promoted 1,000 gallons of ice cream a day for the 4th of July weekend. Some would argue that it was the best ice cream in the state. A newspaper clipping from the Boulder Daily Camera Rights of Jackson buying his first hotel in 1894, called the Brainard Hotel. Despite still being Boulder's number one caterer and running the Stillman Cafe, Jackson was now a hotel owner. His name began to ring among the black communities in Colorado. Who was this slick black businessman who could never lose, not even in a foot race, a fascinating Boulder Daily Camera newspaper clipping from 1896 tells the story of a foot race between O.T. Jackson and another businessman named W. H. Alleger, A-L-L-G-E-Y-E-R. The two wagered a handful of cigars for the first man to cross the finish line down Pearl Street. Legend has it that Jackson, who lost a shoe in the middle of the race, beat Alligator so bad that he quit halfway through the race so he could sit on the sidewalk to watch Jackson's fast 
flying souls. This race would add to Jackson's allure. Not only did his name begin to hold serious weight in the state of Colorado, but so did his boozy party. The Brainard Hotel frequently had live entertainment and hosted events, making it a popular destination for folks seeking entertainment in the western frontier during the time. In 1907, Boulder banned liquor, which devastated the Brainard Hotel. Jackson was forced to sell the hotel, but like losing his shoe during his infamous foot race, he was determined to win regardless of the circumstances. Even though he had lost his hotel, he understood business and how to maneuver next to the white man. With Booker T. Washington's ideology pumping through his veins, Jackson set his sights on creating an agricultural settlement for black folks in America. If he was going to find the resources to make this happen, he needed some political support. In 1908, he worked as a caterer and campaigned for Democratic candidates. Shortly after, he was given a messenger's post at the Colorado governor's office. With the dream of a better world for black Americans as his guide, Jackson convinced the governor to help him file a claim through the Homestead Act of 1909 on 320 acres of desert land in Weld County, Colorado, W-E-L-D. Here, he would build what is now known as the Black Ghost Town of Deerfield, Colorado. But it wasn't always a ghost town. When Jackson founded Deerfield in 1910, the land was far from an ideal place to start a community. The desert environment provided little resources needed to support a town. But that didn't stop black families from moving to Deerfield and finding a way. Seven families moved to the newly established black town in 1910. They built houses out of mud, farmed the land, and survived the brutal winters sheltering in abandoned caves. But the families stuck it out, and eventually the tides began to shift for Deerfield. The world had just begun its Second World War, and U.S. involvement would drive up the demand for crops like corn, barley, and potatoes. Deerfield's agricultural roots would benefit them greatly, and money began to pour into the town. Jackson was also a master promoter. He advertised his black town in almost every newspaper in Colorado. His advertising helped make Deerfield a destination hub for black entertainment. Black folks from all over Denver would travel by train to Deerfield for their famous dance hall, which had live entertainment almost every weekend. The tourist destination also boasted amazing fishing and hunting, as well as a rodeo. In 1915, almost 30 black families had lived in Deerfield, Colorado, with a population of around 700 people. The little desert town had a concrete block factory, dance pavilion lodge, restaurant, grocery store, boarding house, and a baseball team. But hard times would fall on O.T. Jackson and his beloved black town. World War II would end the profits farmers were making from the war, which would also dry up along with the weather. Since Deerfield lacked a proper irrigation system, crops could not grow consistently. 
The Great Depression also played a huge role in the demise of Deerfield. And by 1940, only 12 people were left. Jackson died in 1948, but he never stopped fighting for his community. The town went virtually untouched for years, leaving the remaining structures decayed and ghostly. Even though there are no ghost stories attached to the town, some call it the creepiest ghost town in Colorado. But that didn't stop Black American West Museum from trying to preserve its legacy. The organization purchased the land in hopes to preserve some of its last standing structures, and in 1995, they successfully nominated Deerfield to the National Register of Historic Places. In 2010, a small monument was placed by the town site, celebrating the town's 100th anniversary. But it doesn't seem like enough. The legend of O.T. Jackson and the black ghost town of Deerfield deserves so much more. This article is titled, the Legend of O.T. Jackson and the Black Ghost Town of Deerfield, Colorado. Written by Bilal Morris, News 1, April 11, 2022. The article is titled, Small Businesses Were Ineligible for Wichita Small Business Grants. That confused a lot of people. Written by Celia Hack, H. A-C-K, Wichita Beacon, April 25th, 2022. Jesse Gray's business plan always included building a stage. The troops that frequent Gray's improv studio, The Flying Pig, on East Douglas Avenue, give performances to sold-out crowds on a flat surface. When Gray opened in 2019, she estimated that by 2022, she would have the funds for a stage and lights. COVID changed that. The business closed for nearly a year. I just drained my savings to hold on to the business, Gray said. It was all personal money that went into that. I don't really expect to recoup that. But because of that, I wasn't able to generate the income to pay for a stage and lighting and sound this year. In March, she applied for a small business grant from the city of Wichita, for $27,360 to build a stage. In early April, she found out she didn't get it. Nearly 50% of the 81 applicants for the city's $10 million in workforce and small business entrepreneurial development grants were rejected because their organization was not eligible for the grant. Many, like Gray, were small business owners. The reason? Businesses were ineligible for the grants. Only nonprofits, educational entities, and public and private partnerships, a company paired with a not for profit, were eligible to receive funding. The City Council approved $5.6 million for workforce development grants and $792,511 for small businesses entrepreneurship grants on April 12th. Not one went to small business. But many businesses believed incorrectly that they could apply. The confusion was fueled in part by a staff member's comment during a December city council meeting that businesses were eligible for the grants. City manager Robert Layton 
said the city doesn't have the in-house expertise to review the needs of small businesses. A committee of staff members from three city departments reviewed the grant applications. We wanted to make sure we would solicit proposals from nonprofit organizations or educational institutions that have that expertise and then can establish the loan and grant programs based on need with defined criteria, Layton said. But that didn't happen in the first round of applications. The city opened a second round of grant applications on April 13th with $3.6 million available for workforce and small business entrepreneurial grants. Businesses continue to be ineligible for the grants, but Layton said he has encouraged nonprofits interested in helping small businesses to apply. Gray said she applied for the grant after learning about it from a city council meeting where she heard small businesses were eligible. I thought, oh boy, here's my chance to do some of the things that were in my three-year plan that did not happen because of the pandemic, Gray said. And all of it was to develop my business so that I could have heartier shows and heartier class enrollment and all kinds of things. She spent several days doing research on the grant application, including getting quotes from vendors for the cost of building the stage. Gray said she was left confused when the city told her the business wasn't eligible for a grant. I'm disappointed, Gray said, and I'm a little confused. Gray is not alone. Of the 36 organizations that applied for the small business grants were ineligible. The Wichita Beacon confirmed through the Kansas Secretary of State's website that at least 26 were businesses. Nearly 50% of the total small business grant applications the city received. The Beacon spoke with several other small businesses who thought they were eligible and applied. I really thought it was for small businesses, said Emily Forsberg, F-O-R-S-B-E-R-G, who owns Free State Flora and applied for a small business grant. So I apologized to them wasting their time on it, but the way that it read to me was that it was for small businesses affected by the pandemic. I guess not. Layton said the city's going to change some communications around the small business grants for the second round of funding. The city also told some nonprofits that they were ineligible organizations. Core Monitoring is a small business, but also has a registered nonprofit arm called Core Cares. Tyson Miles, the president and CEO of both organizations, said he applied as a nonprofit, but the city told him he was ineligible because he hadn't submitted forms verifying the organization's nonprofit status. After finding out that was the reason for my ineligibility, I feel like it was another one of those biased Wichita processes, Miles said. The Sunflower Land Trust is another nonprofit that applied for a small business grant but was rejected. The organization didn't include documents showing its nonprofit status in the grant application. Layton wrote in an email to the Beacon. The grant funds come from $72.4 million in American 
Rescue Plan Act, ARPA dollars, the city receives from the federal government. These can be used broadly for pandemic recovery efforts, including direct assistance to small businesses, nonprofits, and households. Last summer, the city polled social media to see how it should use the funds. Support for small businesses came second, and workforce development came third. The city set aside $10 million for workforce development and small business-slash-entrepreneurship grants and opened applications last December. The first priority, affordable housing, received $5 million in ARPA dollars earlier this month when the city council created Wichita's first affordable housing fund. The city allocated the 792000 in small business grants to two nonprofit organizations, the Phillips Fundamental Learning Center and Grover Labs. The Learning Center, an educational nonprofit that serves dyslexic children, is using $631,511 to pay for steel for a new building that would double the number of children they could serve. The cost of the steel increased due to COVID-related supply chain shortages. We were shocked in February of 2020 to learn that our materials to build the building has gone up over $5 million, said Janine Phillips, Executive Director of the Phillips Fundamental Learning Center. It's been a painful, painful journey. The new center will also train teachers on working with and teaching dyslexic children. The project was in the works years before COVID started, Phillips said. The other grant recipient was Grover Labs, a nonprofit dedicated to entrepreneurship in Wichita. The organization received $161,000 to fund two full-time staff members and equipment for its Makers Lab. The goal of the Makers Lab is to help budding entrepreneurs or companies develop prototypes of physical products, said Curtis Gridley, G-R-I-D-L-E-Y, executive director and co-founder of Grover Labs. The organization opened in January 2020, just ahead of the pandemic. Gridley said that stymied their ability to fully utilize Makers Lab. Gridley said that he hopes that expanding the staff will mean more people will be able to use Maker's Lab. This article is titled, Small Businesses Were Ineligible for Wichita Small Business Grants. That confused a lot of people. By Celia Hack, Wichita Beacon, April 25, 2022. The next article is titled, Meet Black Violin, The Brothers Combining Hip-Hop and classical as string mixologist by the Grio staff, May 11, 2022. Two black violinists continue to take the world by storm with their fusion of classical music and hip-hop performed as the duo black violin. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution shared a profile of Kev Marcus and Will Baptiste, B.A.P. T-I-S-T-E, who make up the duo as they prepare to go back on the road. 
The two started playing together in high school in their native Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where they were inspired by one song in particular, Give Me Some More by Busta Rhymes. They then got a shot at appearing on Showtime at the Apollo, where they won. They caught the attention of one of Alicia Keys' managers and joined her for a performance at the 2004 Billboard Music Awards. Their careers grew as they started taking touring gigs, but they maintained their dream to make their own music. Their first album, Black Violin, was released in 2008, followed by two more. Take the Stairs is their fourth project, and Marcus says it is defined by its authenticity. This is the most authentic album we've ever done, he told the AJC in a phone interview earlier this year. The album is who we are. That was the best part of it. It didn't feel like we had to try to conform or act like anything else, and we were still able to make an album that we feel very, very proud about, without necessarily compromising our ideas in any way, all without being preachy. Marcus and Baptiste, who is also a vocalist, says that Take the Stairs is more classical, but they add that the album also has an R&B-leaning vocal melody sound to broaden their appeal and denote their evolution. The two built their career with musical fusion and have appeared in commercials and on television, and they are passionate about supporting kids to pursue the musical arts. Black Violin performed at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and with the National Symphony Orchestra in commemorating the 50th anniversary of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and is currently touring. According to the Houston Chronicle, the duo played more than 100 shows prior to the coronavirus pandemic. Since then, they have released a Christmas album. Our cool stuff to play is Star Wars and West Side Story. Now with us and the rest, they can try more different stuff to connect, says Marcus, referencing such similar crossover artists as Lindsay Sterling, Rasputina, and Zoe Keating as acts that have successfully blended modern music with classical. There is also so much distraction now, so I imagine it's harder to get good with the instrument. I can't imagine practicing while also having like Instagram. On the other hand, you can become viral in middle school thanks to playing on social media. It's exciting. Marcus told Billboard in 2019 that he is proud of the group's nearly two-decade career. Every time I'm playing, I have moments where I can't believe I'm still playing this violin my mom put me into class to learn 30 years ago, Marcus said. Half of me is, I always knew we could do this, and the other half is, I can't believe it worked. Kind of both of those at the same time. It's been really rewarding, but we feel like there's a lot more for us to do too. This article is titled, Meet Black Violin, the Brothers Combining Hip-Hop and Classical as String Mixologists by the Grio staff, May 11, 2022. The next article is titled, Democrats' Bill Would Make Roe versus Wade Law and Expand It by the Community Voice Writers, May 11, 2022. Washington Associated Press. Senator 
Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, S-C-H-U-M-E-R, says Democrats' abortion legislation is very simple, as it would enshrine into federal law the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide. Senate Democrats are moving quickly to try to codify the 50-year-old ruling after a draft U.S. Supreme Court opinion suggesting the court is poised to overturn the case was leaked last week. But they don't have enough votes, and Republicans are expected to block the bill in a test vote Wednesday. But if the Democratic legislation were to become law, it would do more than just preserve the status quo. The bill would also expand projections invalidating many state laws that Democrats and abortion rights advocates say have infringed on the original 1973 ruling. Two Republican senators who support abortion rights have indicated they won't vote for it, instead favoring their own narrower legislation. A look at the legislation the Senate is voting on Wednesday, codifying Roe v. Wade. Broadly, the main objective of the legislation is to codify Roe v. Wade into federal law, meaning it would be much harder for the Supreme Court to overturn. In the five decades the ruling has been court precedent, abortion rights supporters have not been able to pass federal legislation to legalize abortion. And because the Supreme Court decided on that right, it can also take it away, however rare that move may be. In codifying Roe, the legislation would establish that health care providers have rights to provide abortion services and that patients have a right to receive abortions. The Democrats' bill would also end certain state laws that they say have chipped away at the original Roe v. Wade decision, banning what they say are medically unnecessary restrictions that block access to safe and accessible abortions. The court has allowed states to regulate but not ban abortion before the point of viability, around 24 weeks, resulting in a variety of state laws and restrictions that abortion rights supporters oppose. The bill would end bans earlier than 24 weeks, in addition to any restrictions that do not make exceptions for the patient's health or life. It would also stop states from requiring providers share medically inaccurate information or from requiring additional tests or waiting periods aimed at dissuading a patient from having an abortion. Republican Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski, M-U-R-K-O-W-S-K-I of Alaska, support abortion rights but have opposed the Democratic legislation, saying it is too expansive and could threaten some religious liberties that states have sought to protect. They have introduced legislation that would hew closer to what the court currently allows, more generally prohibiting states from imposing an undue burden on the ability of a woman to choose whether to have an abortion prior to fetal viability. It is not expected to get a vote. Without the votes to pass their bill, 
Democrats have few options to block the eventual court ruling if it overturns Roe v. Wade. Democratic leaders have signaled that they instead intend to take the fight voters ahead of this year's midterms. We've got elections, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat, Connecticut, said Tuesday. Associated Press writers Lisa Mascaro, M-A-S-C-A-R-O, and Farnoosh Amiri, F-A-R-N-O-U-S-H, Amiri, A-M-I-R-I, contributed to this report. This article is titled, Democrats' Bill Would Make Roe v. Wade Law and Expand It, by the Community Voice Writers, May 11, 2022. The next article is titled, Cannabis Working to End Food Deserts Through Innovative Partnership with Local Corner Stores, by Jaslyn Johnson, the Community Voice, May 13, 2022. People are constantly walking in and out of the In-N-Out on Walrond Avenue and East 51st Street. And one of the first things that catches your eye inside is the Kanabe Markets Cooler, filled with a variety of fresh and bright-looking fruits and vegetables. One of the first things that catches your eye inside is the Market Cooler, filled with a variety of fresh and bright-looking fruits and vegetables. Canbay's Markets is a nonprofit with a mission to end food deserts in the Kansas City metro. To do this, they provide affordable and fresh food to the neighborhoods facing food insecurity through partnerships with local corner stores. Before Canbay's was here, there just wasn't anything good for you here but water, said Charles Strozier. S-T-R-O-Z-I-E-R, an employee of the In-N-Out, which is traditionally a liquor store. But since Canbase has come in, a lot of people just come into the store for Canbase food. The In-N-Out, located in a food desert, is the closest place to buy fresh produce for at least a mile. For those who don't have access to transportation to a grocery store, Many people resort to buying food from their nearest gas station or corner store, which most times lack healthy, fresh fruit and vegetables. More than 15% of residents in the Kansas City metro do not have enough to eat, according to the Greater Kansas City Food Policy Coalition. That number has increased due to the pandemic. So far, Canbase partners with 43 corner stores in the metro. As a result, they provided food to more than 250,000 people. It's something that Canbay says hasn't been done before. There have been similar models. Most organizations will open their own storefront, said Jamie Platchett, P-L-A-C-H-T, a community engagement coordinator for Canbay's. But nothing like this that partners with existing infrastructure in the community and gives the community the power of purchasing their own produce and becoming more self-sufficient. Platchett said Strozier is a big supporter of Canbase, not only because it's providing healthy food to the neighborhood, but because it's supporting the business. People will come here 
People will come in here just for can-based produce, and we benefit from that as a business, Strozier said. I've seen the coolers in other stores, and they're empty. We cook and need this food, especially in the hood, he said. The people who come here have grown to count on Canbase. Canbase provides the cooler and fresh food to corner stores. It also sends its drivers who will go to each of the locations daily, sometimes more, to restock and rotate the produce. When a customer buys the produce, they pay for it at the register, just like a regular purchase. Canbase takes 70% and the store takes 30% of the profits. Canbase purchases food from wholesalers, the same ones grocery stores use, and also receives food donations and discounts. That's how the organization is able to keep their prices so low, sometimes three to four times lower than grocery store prices. Included in coolers are produce like apples, oranges, cucumbers, lemons, bags of clementines, cabbage, peppers, and tomatoes. Drivers pick up the food from the wholesaler or farm and then volunteers sort the food and only the best looking produce will go on the cooler shelves at the corner stores. The rest will be used for composting or making meals, working to ensure no food is wasted. Jay Jones, Community Engagement Coordinator at Cambase, started working for the organization as a driver in 2016 and says the drivers are one of the most important aspects of the organization. It was the ultimate experience, he said. As a driver, you get to see it all. You put the food out there and you're in charge of the presentation. And you get to see people buy the food and respond to the prices. I've never seen an ugly looking piece of produce in that cooler because they come every day and if there's a bad one, they take it back. And we deserve that, said Strozier. That's unheard of. How the produce Canbase is selling to the community is one of the most important aspects for them. We've asked what the community wants, and we've heard that the community wants quality and presentation, said Platchett. Antoinette Nickens, a customer at the In-N-Out, said she regularly buys fruit at the corner store. They just look so good and fresh, she said, grabbing a bundle of bananas which are four for a dollar. That's what made me want to pick them up. Canbays is hoping to expand and reach more corner stores, as well as other infrastructure in the community. They're hoping to bring coolers to local community centers and even pediatric offices for families. This is a movement, said Jones. This is something we're trying to help generations understand that healthy and affordable options are needed. This article is titled, Canbase Working to End Food Deserts Through Innovative Partnerships with Local Corner Stores by Jaslyn Johnson, The Community Voice, May 13, 2022. The next article is titled, The Strength of a Woman by Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Ebony, May 2022. Written instructions accompanying the invitation to the grand opening of Tyler Perry's studios were clear. No photographs. The unspoken rules, such as act like you've been somewhere before, not so much. When I bump into Oprah Winfrey and Stedman Graham during the cocktail reception, I breathe deeply and make small talk. When I see Beyonce and Jay-Z at dinner, I smile pleasantly 
and resists the urge to ask for a selfie. When chatting with Anthony Anderson, I laugh, but not too loud. When I spot Halle Berry, Maxwell, and Michael Ely across the venue, I know not to stare. But with Viola Davis, I couldn't resist. The rules were dismissed. It was my first introduction to the incomparable actor who has an Emmy, two Tonys, an Oscar, and six SAG awards to her name. In a room of stars among stars, Viola and her husband, Julius Tenen, were the ones who made me giddy. I pounced on them, eager and hard. Hi, I'm the mayor. Welcome to Atlanta. I adopted my children too, I exclaimed, and just like that, the ice was broken. What began as a pleasant exchange turned into a lengthy conversation that I cannot fully recall. To paraphrase Maya Angelou, people will forget what you did, but not how you made them feel. I felt a genuine connection with Viola that night, thinking it was because we shared the joy of having children born of our hearts. When we next spoke, this time over a quiet Zoom chat for Ebony, I knew my connection to her that magical evening went much deeper. I had read her memoir, Finding Me, discovering it was to be a shared sisterhood that speaks to the lives of so many who have searched for worth, fought imposter syndrome, resisted survivor's remorse, battled demons, overcome the odds, and proudly won the S on their chest. Viola was much more than the characters I had seen on the screen. Viola is a superwoman, not because she is a star, but because she is a survivor, and her secrets are no longer her kryptonite. Keisha Lance Bottoms. What was it like to attend the unveiling of Tyler Perry Studios? Viola Davis. What I saw that night was the solution. I saw legacy, vision, purpose. It was the answer to those who have a larger vision of what they want their world to look like. They grab that rope and create for themselves as opposed to waiting. It was very emotional for me. Keisha. It was emotional to read your book. I cannot imagine what it was like for you to write it. What was the process like? Viola. It was a journey, and just the power of memory, how it could still affect you and what you choose to remember. It was emotional, because when you write it, you feel the moments that were and are still very painful. Then you see the moments that were also filled with strength and resilience. I began to revisit the Viola who was a survivor, who I sort of left behind. I always thought I was a bad kid. We want kids in a category of either bad or good. It's way more complicated than that. I was not a bad kid. I was a kid who was trying to work things out, who had a lot going on at home, who probably needed a creative outlet. I was a kid who probably had a lot of compassion and empathy, but who was hurt. All those things I began to remember. So it blew a hole in my world today in terms of how I see myself. It blew a hole in the power of memory, a reintroduction to the fact that the past doesn't have a hold on me anymore, but it absolutely created the person that I am today. I thought of all those things as I went back in time because I really needed to be reintroduced to her. Keisha.
As I read your book, I thought, is this about me? Or will it resonate with black women everywhere? Did you write it for you or for us? Viola, I wrote it for everyone. As a mom, you begin to see your own shortcomings, that part of your life where your child becomes a mirror to your unfinished work. Nobody wants to fess up to their mess. You sit down with other women, and nobody remembers a time when they felt awkward, sort of funky, or didn't fit in. I thought of all the people who feel like they're going through something in life, and all coming out of something in life. I guarantee you they feel very much alone. I did this to give people a great dose of truth. Yes, I have so-called made it to the mountaintop, but not without scars and bruises. That's what life is. It's the moment that you open up and say something that makes people feel less alone. Keisha, your life with your family is so different from your childhood. How do you impart what's needed to your daughter, Genesis, without her having to experience the trauma and heartache and all those things that made you into who you are? Viola, that's the hardest part of parenting. It's impossible to protect your kids from the world. The only thing I could do is give her what is in me. I don't subscribe to any parameters. What I subscribe to is what I needed. Those are the things that I give her, and I see her eyes light up. I wanted someone to guide me, but also wanted to see my parents as human. I wanted to see what was making my dad mad all the time. I wanted to understand how my mom got pregnant at 15, what she was afraid of, and what she lived for. Those were the things that would have helped me. Then when I went through them, I would have had at least some palate for it. I didn't have a palate for self-love or self-anything. Keisha, what is the biggest lesson Genesis has taught you? Viola, I said Genesis you look so cute. She said, I know, right? Oh, there's a party going on inside the head of an 11-year-old that defines absolutely who she is. The thing about that girl is that she absolutely celebrates every inch of who she is. That has absolutely been the biggest obstacle in my life, but not for her. I don't see it in myself, naturally. I love her confidence. We could all learn a lot from Genesis. Keisha, did it hurt to expose so much? You've had to relive a lot of the trauma in writing. How did you get past that and say, I'm still going to do it anyway? That could have been your little secret. We've heard you talk about growing up in poverty. But in this book, you get into so much more of the layers and how it impacted you. Viola, I really hit a wall with the pandemic. Then it was Black Lives Matter. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery. In my life, what was being played out, disillusionment of being on top. There's a huge part of that which I feel extraordinarily grateful for. And a lot of that is crap. I thought once you hit it, that's it. All I felt was exhaustion. All I'm thinking about is getting back to my daughter and my house. All I'm facing is criticism and scrutiny and pressure. I'm like, is this it? The strongest tool I had was to go back to a time when the world didn't label me 
and I was still the purest form of who I was. I had to get the part of me out that is holding me back. I had to go back to who Viola truly was. What are my dreams? What brought me joy and peace? What would make me just scream and squeal with happiness? Every culture out there has some level of a ritual or a myth to help them navigate the mysteries of life. Songs, chants, dances. They have community. They have a way to connect to the earth. We don't have that. So when you lose meaning, the only ritual I had that I could find in the midst of this pandemic was to write my story. To put out all the piss and friggin' broken glass out there. It's like putting all the pieces of the puzzle on a big table and figuring out how to put it back together again. I knew it was going to hurt. I was going to feel vulnerable. But I knew I had to work through it. I still feel a huge level of fear. I'm a private person. But I was stuck in life, and this memoir was the answer to it. Keisha, you write about secrets, how you were taught to keep them, how they were weighing you down. We often don't like to tell our stories. We want people to think that we woke up just like this. Then you write the book, and you tell so much. How do you think your family will feel? Viola, I hope my family sees it as a love story to them. Bell Hooks talks about it all the time. She's like, why do you have to call me angry? I'm just speaking my truth. That's a part of loving you. That's a part of wanting to connect with you. Secrets disallow you to do it. They disallow you to connect with yourself and the world. By the time I go to my grave, I want my daughter to know who I am. So when she goes through her life, she doesn't have to feel like, am I a unicorn? Am I a monster? Oh, that feels bad, as opposed to, that's a decision I made. But my mom told me something similar when she went through this. She has a tool to unlock something. Secrets are rooted in shame. When you roll into that grave without ever sharing your truth, you are a mystery to the world. You might as well not have even lived. You haven't left any sort of piss or anything in the world. Keisha, what was it that Denzel Washington said about he's never seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached to the back? Viola, you can't bring your makeup or billion-dollar salary to your grave, and nobody has it on their gravestone. So then, what is your life about? Everything I went through has made me who I am. I don't care how many degrees and awards you had. You're still going through some stuff in life. How you get through it and the tools you use absolutely makes you who you are. Keisha, you talk about your struggles with fibroids, the surgeries, and the adhesions. I've heard fibroids described as bundles of stress. Do you think that's manifestation of stress and trauma for black women? Viola, absolutely. A black doctor said to me, you're pre-diabetic but I'm going to treat you like you have type 2 diabetes. My theory is that only a certain percentage of us made it through the middle passage. We don't talk about those millions of souls that are at the bottom of the ocean, the ones that did survive. That is what we've inherited. Autoimmune diseases, inflammation, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, 
fibroids, anxiety, being an enabler. All those things are in my DNA. I can't stand it when people say, you have to work 10 times as hard. I work really hard. But how the hell do you work 10 times as hard? I cannot tell you how many times I almost drove into a truck falling asleep behind the wheel. I have no memories of certain jobs, stress, fibroids. That's all I got from working 10 times as hard. What happens after you start feeling the anxiety and the stress from working that hard, but you don't listen to it? The only thing you think is, I gotta just work harder. Someone else is handling it better than I. You begin to stop listening to that inner voice. It's that inner voice that is your voice of truth. Keisha, I remember when I got my fibroids removed thinking, well, if these are my bundles of stress, then where's the stress going to go? Because I didn't remove the stress, I just removed the fibroids. How did you claim yourself for yourself and not feel the guilt that comes along with that? Viola, it's ongoing. I started therapy years ago, but you can't undo in a minute, week, or month what took decades of doing. There's no conversation going on about mindfulness. How many people encourage you to listen to that inner voice? What if the inner voice tells you, I'm not loving myself enough? There is this sort of puritanical notion in our culture that when you're idle and at peace, the devil is working. The devil is getting in there to tell you you're lazy. The idleness, that idleness, is the quiet meditation, the leaning into yourself. That's God's way of telling you that's where you need to be. He's given you the biggest gift of navigating your life. You're just not listening when you're listening to the world. It's an ongoing struggle and journey. Being at peace, not listening to the world, and not measuring myself by what the world is doing is constant. Keisha, your family story is incredible on so many levels. The forgiveness of your dad, the strength of your mom. Do you experience any type of survivor's remorse? How do you put those boundaries up to protect yourself when everybody else seems to be looking to you to save them? Viola, that's ongoing. And people have a real sort of messed up relationship with money. They just see you as the meal ticket and ATM when you're in the public eye and your survivor's guilt sometimes feeds into that. Like there is no way to celebrate your successes if you don't give someone something. It's your way of also keeping people close to you until you get tired of it. Keisha, your mom and dad, the two who in many ways you did want to save, lived in an 800 square foot apartment with 14 people and wouldn't move. What made them hold on to that physical space? Viola, money can't change anything that's not manifested internally. I could have gotten my parents a 10,000 square foot house and it would not have changed anything. The enabling addiction issues would have made the problem bigger. When I started therapy, my therapist said, you wouldn't be able to cross the street unless it was covered in crap and piss because you wouldn't see it as normal. What you see as normal is messy. You sort of follow what you know, even if it's negative. That was a huge part of my parents, just doing what they knew to do. 
growing up with no indoor toilet, parents who were alcoholics. You don't just read a book, go to therapy, or on social media and go, oh, I saw a TED Talk, 10 Rules to Succeed in Life and How to Overcome a Traumatic Past. It doesn't work that way. It's hardcore work to transform. And I'm tackling it like a frigging warrior. I give my parents huge credit for surviving. I give my dad huge credit for transforming his life into a very loving man. But in terms of their physical space, that was a hard one. Keisha, you and your husband seem to balance each other well. How do you keep that balance when you are the one in the spotlight? Viola, we put us first. There's got to be a sacred space in your life that's untouched by the outside world, something that you hold tried and true, that cannot be defined by anyone else, that can't be touched by anyone else, the place you call home, metaphorically and literally speaking. That's what we have. When I prayed for a man, I was very intentional. The first thing I said was country. That's the code word for mensch, for people who live in that truth, no matter what. They don't care how many people are judging them. They are absolutely who they are, without apology. We laugh a lot. I mean, every single day, rolling on the floor laughing. He loves coming in and just saving me. He loves being the fixer. He has my back. He stands in the gap. I tell Genesis that the key to life is to find people who love you, even if it's one or two people. You can do a lot on your own, but you need people in your life who just love you. They see all the ragged edges, but they love you. They're rooting for you. They're sitting by you when you're crying, when you've failed, and when you've succeeded. Keisha, I remember the first time I bought a set of tires while dating my husband, and he couldn't believe it. It took me a long time to figure out ways to allow him to feel needed. Did it take you long? Viola, a long time. When I was single, I'd carry bags on my head, two on my shoulders, and I'd go up five flights of stairs. Suddenly, I had Julius, who was saying, let me help you. I was like, no, I could do this on my own. Once again, it's subscribing to everything everyone has told you about relationships being independent, being successful, being black, being confident. You subscribe to every definition out there until you get to a part of your life where you're like, I really reject it. I reject anyone saying I don't compromise, even in marriage. I don't believe in compromising. And I'm like, there is no compromise? Keisha, that marriage is not going to last very long. That's the narrative that's out there. You do whatever you do on your own, and that's it. No, it's not it. You have to be on the no-carb diet and lighter than a paper bag to be classically beautiful. You have to have a thinner nose and lips. You can't be sexual if you have a deeper voice. I got to the point where I'm like, who said that? I make my own rules. Inner truth is a revolutionary, radical, disconnecting from any definitions of the world and creating a definition for yourself. The only agreement is you sort of got to love each other and love yourself through it. Everything else I reject, even the people who said I was ugly. Looking back, can I just tell you how many dudes thought I was pretty cute. So it's a lie. Fitting in and acceptance is for the oppressors. The world and life 
belongs to the people who are brave and courageous enough to go out there and harness it. I love the quote that says, Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Keisha. Amen, Viola. Amen. This article was titled, The Strength of a Woman. Story by Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Photography by Keith Mayer. Viola Davis is on the cover of May 2022's Ebony. That's all the time we have for the African American News Hour. My name is Rosemary Anque. Here's a selection from the Black Violin. Oh, <laughs>